We're going to have the second half of our reading, which is Isaiah 64, which is now on page 623. <coughs> Again, if it helps you to concentrate, um, actually back from 63 verse 7, we have a lament um, of Isaiah and the people. And so you might like to think about, as I read chapter 64, uh, what is the content of the lament? What does, what does he ask for? Only if that helps, otherwise just enjoy the read. It says this. <clears throat> oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down the mountains, quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. You have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are a father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? But do keep that open. We'll be looking at that together in the next few minutes. Just to say, there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. Do you make note of that? Some people like to make notes to steady their thinking. Um, also, there'll be an opportunity at the end to ask any questions or make any comments. So bear that in mind as we go through. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who does not change, that you are truthful, good, and rightly sovereign over us. And therefore we pray now, in our response to your word, that we would vindicate who you are in the way that we listen, trust, and obey your voice. Amen. The divine dilemma is a conundrum, a way of expressing the tension that exists in the storyline of the Bible, put forth by a guy called Athanasius. It expresses 
two concerns that God has that together form a dilemma, a problem for God, if you can put it that way. One concern is about the penalty for sin, God's word of judgment. The other concern is about God's creation and what will happen to it. Listen to how he puts it in his own words. It would, of course, have been unthinkable that God should go back on his word and that man having transgressed should not die. But it was equally monstrous that beings which once had shared the nature of the word should perish and turn back again into non-existence through corruption. So on the one hand, there is the concern that God has given his word of judgment. In Genesis 3, we learn from the outset that sin has a penalty, and the penalty for sin is death. And it's unthinkable that God will go back on this word. On the other hand, there is God's concern that his creation won't come to ruin. It's monstrous to think that those God created in his image would come to nothing. Now, put in these terms, you can see the dilemma. In the purposes of God, it's not obvious how these two things can be resolved without either one of them being compromised. Now, I start with this because these twin concerns and this note of tension in one way or another feature in our passage this morning as we consider Isaiah's lament. Now, we're at the point in Isaiah where it's envisaged that the people are now in exile in Babylon and they cry out to God, the prophet cries out to God. But what is his cry? What is his prayer? But before we get to the prayer, there's this intriguing bit in verses, um, at the beginning of chapter 63, verses 1 to 6, which introduces this character uh, who I've called the lone warrior. And he's, he's portrayed in quite a dramatic and graphic way. So let's, just for a moment, try and enter into some of that drama. So it begins, in verse 1, with someone looking like a warrior coming out of Eden. The question is asked, who is this? He answers, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Now at this point, I take it that the, the warrior has got near enough for the watchman to see a bit more closely what he's wearing. And he sees that the garments he's wearing aren't themselves red, but they have been reddened in some way. And this prompts a second question. Why are you spattered in red? 
Have you been pressing grapes? He suggests. Well, the warrior's reply is that it's not grapes that he's been treading, but the nations in judgment. It's not wine that's spattered on his garments that's made them red, but their blood. Now, if we revisit where he came from, verse 1, Edom, it kind of all starts to make sense. Eden are known as the enemies of God. Okay? And therefore, having come from Edom, he's come from having executed God's judgment on sin. Now, one of the intriguing features, and I wonder if you picked this up when I was reading through, is the fact that the warrior is alone. Let, let me show you how that's emphasised. Have a look at verse 3. It says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. And then look down to verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but that there was no one to uphold. Well, what are we to make of this? Now, it's not, it can't be that he is a loner, because there is this expectation that there would be others who would share in this task of bringing about God's justice. Rather, he's alone because there is no one found to share in the task. And if we step back, we can kind of see why. I mean, the nations don't share in the task because they're the enemies of God, even the ones in the vat. And the people of Israel do not share the righteousness and purity of God. Now, this lone warrior is very reminiscent of the figure that we met back in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 16. The one who is identified as the divine warrior who removed sin, who would purge the world of sin. And interestingly, although we didn't pick up on it at the time, he was also alone. For there was no one else found to intercede in this way. In other words, this warrior is alone in the task because he is the only one who shares in it, and therefore the only one who is in any position to accomplish what God has promised. The judgment that the lone warrior brings prompts a lament. And the lament that runs through from chapter 63, verse 7, all the way to the end of chapter 64. Now, a word about pronoun, pronouns at this point. That is the I's and the he's, the we's and the us's. Because we've had a few questions on this in recent weeks. And so just to clarify at this point, the I in 63, 1 to 6 is the lone warrior. Whereas the I, from 63 verse 7, is Isaiah. 
and turns into the we or us of the people of Israel. So the, the lament is a lament shared by the people of Israel. And it becomes a question that we need to be aware of as we read Isaiah, as to who is, who is it that's speaking or who has been spoken of. Now this whole thing is a lament because it's a cry from suffering. That is what a lament is. And the circumstance here is that the people are envisaged in exile in Babylon. It appears that God is no longer with them. The temple lies in ruins. And it's worth stopping and considering, what would you pray? What would be appropriate to pray at this point? Well, let me mention two of the big themes that characterise this lament. The first is a concern for God's name. And the second is a plea for God's mercy. Let's uh, take them in turn. Now, I don't know what you made of verse 7 and following, because there's a kind of a journey that Isaiah goes on, drawing on the language of the Exodus. It's not always that specific, and maybe a, a more general reflection. For various points, God was seen to be merciful, and he kept his people despite their rebellion. But what is his point in doing this? Well, the whole remembrance is framed in terms of a remembering that Israel are the people that God has chosen. So if you have a look at 63 verse 8, For God, that's the he, said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their saviour. Of all the nations of the world, they were to be called by his name. He redeemed them in order to make a glorious name for himself. That is what's at stake. His people are closely collect connected to his name. And therefore what happens to them has a bearing on him. And now it doesn't feel a million miles away doesn't feel that we're a million miles away from the way that Athanasius put the concern for God's creation. His idea was the idea that it was monstrous to think that God's creation would come to ruin. It's unfitting for those God who has made in his image come to naught. Now Athanasius, of course, well, he starts with God's creation purpose back in Genesis. But as you go on, God's creation purpose becomes expressed through the promises made to Abraham. Promises inherited by the nation of Israel. The promises are in those terms of the fulfilment of God's creation purpose that will be fulfilled this, through this particular nation. What we have with Israel at this point is actually the future of the whole world. And therefore Isaiah's concern is that it's all going to come to nothing. At present it lies in tatters. 
that all that God has already done for them would end in ruin. His love for them, the compassion he has shown them, the mighty acts he did for them, would at the end of the day be nothing. Now, no doubt, this whole train of thought can be twisted and thought of as just trying to cajole God into acting. You know, this doesn't look good for you, God, if you just leave us this way. And it becomes ultimately self-interested. But I take it that it's possible to have a genuine concern for the glory of God. That his plan doesn't come to naught, but that his kingdom would come. And this actually becomes a ground, or the ground, for the appeal that Isaiah then makes. The appeal itself comes in chapter 64. And the plea the people make is one for mercy. That is because they discern that they are in exile, not because God's abandoned them, but because of their iniquity. They're in exile because of the judgment of God. That is why they pray for mercy and ask that God would no longer remember their iniquity, that he would no longer be angry with them, but restore them to him. One might think that because they're in exile, theirs would be a bitter plea, citing the injustice of it all, one of victimhood. Yet actually the prophet is right to discern, and it's a theme throughout his whole book, that the reason they are where they are is because of their iniquity. Seen in the book of Isaiah, in the alliances that they make with the nations, rather than trusting in God, that is why they are exiled into Babylon. The God who has redeemed them has become their enemy. They've made themselves enemies of God. And again, it doesn't feel a million miles away from the way Athanasius put the concern for God's word of judgment. I mean, he began in Genesis with the penalty for sin being death. And that it was unthinkable that God should go back on his word and that man having transgressed should not die. But the Bible, it never moves on from that. Here the people have sinned. God has become their enemy and therefore he needs to be appeased. And whilst the end of the judgment is seen at the end of the 70 years that they were to spend in exile in Babylon, the question of the people's sin remains. And whatever the solution is to be, it's one that cannot compromise his justice. It's interesting that they want, they want the lone warrior to come from heaven, 64 verse 1. They want him to come. But they're also aware that they're part of the problem and therefore they need forgiveness of their sins. We began with Athanasius and the divine dilemma. And the reason that he wants to talk about the divine dilemma is because ultimately he wants to explain why the son became incarnate. 
why Jesus came. And as we briefly consider in the reflection, Jesus is the solution to the divine dilemma. But before we get there, the tension continues to present itself in the book of Isaiah. But just look at how our section ends in 64 verse 12. The people ask, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? It ends with these two questions. The these things in the first question refers to the mercy and compassion of God that he has previously shown them. And it asks, will God restrain from showing such mercy again? The second question asks whether God will refuse to answer the cries for mercy. Will he continue to afflict them? Will God keep silent? Will the lone warrior come? And I take it that there is some value to pause and reflect on these questions. Because if we rush too quickly to the solution, we may miss the tension that exists in the storyline of the Bible. A tension that reveals not only what will be required of a solution, the mercy of God, but the grounds for a solution being provided, the reputation and name of God himself. Well, let me pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you how Isaiah continues to reveal um, who you are um, in his uh, prophecies. Uh, we thank you again uh, to be able to revisit uh, this uh, warrior figure who will bring about your justice. Um, but Father, we also um, consider from uh, the prayers of your people actually uh, what um, godly concerns are, that they, as those who bear your name, are concerned that your name wouldn't lie in tatters, but actually would be glorified by the fulfilment of your promises, and not least the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. But Father, also aware of how deeply sinful they are, they cry out uh, for mercy. And whilst in many ways their lament is a cliffhanger in terms of uh, leaving us with these questions, we thank you, as I will see a bit later, how actually that dilemma now finds its solution in the person and work of your son. I do pray that as we dwell on these things and enter the storyline of the Bible, that we would see actually the grounds uh, for your mercy to us in, in Jesus is ultimately to um, make a name for yourself, that your creation would not come to ruin, but that would ultimately displayed in a new Adam, a new heaven, a new earth, a new people who you will dwell with for all eternity. Amen. Okay. Would anyone like to make a comment or ask a question?
Susie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, we're on. Are we on? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I kind of, I think I follow. So you're kind of thinking there is this lament and this um, plea for mercy and a concern for God's name that Isaiah's talking about, but it seems to include the people. But do the people actually pray this? How closely tied is, is this to their prayer and their return from exile? That kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, so it's it's a tricky question. Now, I think it's worth... Um, actually, is that helpful? So... So I think here, this is anticipated, so this is like envisaged as a future thing. So this isn't what's recording what's happened. And I think if I'm right in thinking, if you go back to chapter Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1, we're told about the time where the vision of Isaiah came. So it did come over a period of time, but it doesn't cover. Um, so it says there, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. So Isaiah, he is covering a period of time, but as far as I'm aware, you know, his period of time didn't include, he didn't see it all happen. So this isn't a record of what's happened, but that this is almost, this, this ought to be the appropriate response of the people um, But, so, so, so in that sense, the whole question of did they or didn't they, it's, it's not answering that question. It's just saying this is, this, is, this is the appropriate lament to make. But then also, and this is where your question becomes slightly hard to answer, is that Isaiah, um, he's not just looking ahead to the return from exile. He's looking ahead to a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. And you often get this with the prophets, is that their horizons are, you know, it's, 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 it's as far as you can see. It's, it's, the, it's the new heaven and new earth. And in many ways, it all gets a little bit collapsed and you just think, well, what are they talking about? And in many ways, there's just a far-reaching um, envisioning of, of what's going to happen because also here we've got the coming of this divine warrior we've got the coming of the servant of the lord the arm of the lord that brings the fullness of god's salvation and you know all of that and you just think well that didn't really happen in exile and actually the fullness of that didn't happen until well it's happened to some extent in the in the coming of jesus but well you as you mentioned you've got the whole sort of now and not yet so i think in this sense I think Isaiah is, is, um, isn't kind of necessarily too worried, but that actually this, this, is, this is how the people ought to orientate themselves to God. That on the one hand, there is this concern for his name. That's going to be the grounds for him acting. But then there's also, actually, they need the mercy of God. And it is true. I mean, you look at a broader, although this is talking about Israel, this is the broader thing of the whole world is under the judgment of God. And therefore, what the world needs to do is to cry out to God for mercy, so they actually are included in these promises. Um, what else was I going to say? Uh, 
Oh, one thing, one thing would be interesting. I think it's Daniel 9, where Daniel actually does pray a prayer of confession. So remember, Daniel was written in exile. And actually, Daniel, it's and interesting with Daniel, Daniel actually remembers the promise that Jeremiah made, or that God made through Jeremiah, that, they would only, that their judgment would last 70 years, and then they would return from exile. And so Daniel prays, these 70 years are coming for the end. Remember us, have mercy on us, restore us to come back. So in many ways, there is a, there is a remnant, a faithful remnant. But it feels like Isaiah, you can't, you can't contain him to that because his, his perspective is, is, is so big. So, cool. Anybody else? Uh, Nathan. Yeah, no, good one. So, um, I've got to repeat that. So, basically, how does chapter 63 relate to 62? And we have the coming of um, salvation previously, um, kind of uh, uh, envisaged in the year of the Lord's favour. How closely tied is that to the coming of the Lord's, the, the lone warrior, that sort of thing? Yeah, um, I think I think it I think it does. I mean, it is it's a funny book because you do feel like at various points you felt like the book could end, and then we kind of go on, and then there's more material, and you think, well, hang on, we could have stopped here. And I think when we looked at it before, there is a um, I mean, you get this quite a lot with um, um, what's it called Revelation. You kind of get that kind of going over again and again and adding um, uh, adding more detail, sort of fleshing it out, providing a sort of a fullness. So when you think it's, you know, you've kind of gone through it once, we're thinking, well, hang on, we've got the warrior coming again. He's already come back in chapter 59. You know, in many ways, we've already had this picture of a, a new Jerusalem. Um, so, yeah, I think it is tied to that how we get this new Jerusalem, it will be tied to the, the coming of this warrior who will um, bring about the justice of God. I mean, one thing to think about, and I think it, probably a good question to ask is, what's, what's new? And I think, it's, it, I find it very intriguing how his, his isolation, his aloneness is, which I don't think we've, 
Well, interestingly, I do think we had a little bit with the servant of the Lord and we had with the divine warrior. But I wonder if you could go back. Do you remember, I think we said ages ago that a really good key verse for the whole book is Isaiah 11. Was it one and two? This whole idea that Israel is a disobedient son is going to be cut back to a stump. But from the stump, a shoot will come. And from that shoot, the fulfillment of God's sort of salvation will come. And so it's interesting, that whole cutting back and then a shoot. I wonder if that fits with that theme of actually a salvation's to come. It's, well, it's just interesting because like no, one, no one's on board with God. Everyone's either obstructing him or contesting him. And so actually this, this one who's going to come will be unique because there, there's no one. And it's interesting, I think, in Matthew, like looking at the life of Jesus, that actually you increasingly see his isolation because um, the Jews, the Jewish leaders obstruct him. People don't understand uh, what he's come to do. And therefore there is this um, sense of aloneness. Not that he wants to be alone, but just he finds himself the only one sharing God's purposes and, and the will of the Father. And then actually wonderfully through his salvation, those purposes are then included, shared by the people that he, he saves. So, okay, I'll give it that. Time for another quick one, if there is. Yes. Okay. Um, how can we engage? Just thinking slightly, take a step back because you kind mm. of presented the, the two concerns yeah. at the start. How can we engage people short of sitting down and doing God and make off notes and kind of just spending seven weeks reading the Bible with someone? So engage with those issues if they're not even concerned about those issues in the first place, Okay, are you thinking particularly like sharing them with you know, people we might engage with in the week, that sort of thing? Yeah, just yeah. both like non Christian Yeah, yeah. 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 No. Good question. So I have I thought about this a little bit. So uh, for the recording, like, how does short of doing a make stuff known with someone, how do we how do we engage with people or share these concerns if people don't have these concerns at all, like that kind of thing? So I think one thing I'm increasingly um, doing, partly because you know it's just embarrassing when people ask you like about Sunday and you say like I was at church or oh, what do you do uh, or looking at Isaiah and you just think if I was asked this question I was someone asked me oh, I'm preparing a sermon or oh, what's it about you go Isaiah and it's just like okay that was <laughs> yeah that's just a conversation sort of killer and so I think um, you could think about and I think you could use for any sermon or anything you're learning is what is what's something intriguing that you can say that might prompt them to then engage. 
But I think the dilemma thing is interesting. I think it's, it's not that people will share either of the, the concerns that Isaiah, so Athanasius puts forward, but what you could do is you could say, if, they, if it comes up, you could say, oh, we're, there's a really interesting dilemma that we looked at on Sunday, or there's this kind of conundrum in the Bible. I wonder if you can solve it. And basically the two things is, you know, God's, um, uh, God created the world. Oh, no, it's, I'll probably start with the second one. I know, which one do you start with? I'd start with, let's start with the penalty for sin. I think that makes more sense. I might say, um, uh, on the one hand, God's given his word that the penalty for sin is death, and because all sin all die. So it's, there's that word. And then the other word is, he's given his word that he's created the world, and that that's going to, that's going to come to its final you know, glory. Um, but how can he keep both of those words? Because everyone sins, everyone dies. His creation comes to ruin. So how can how can God how can God solve that? Um, so I mean, I don't know. You, I, you could put it better than that. But basically, have it more as a puzzle of just trying to articulate the two elements of the of the dilemma. But interestingly, in doing that, you're actually covering quite a lot of ground because you're, t- you're introducing God as the creator who has a plan for his creation. And then also that he's also a God who's given his word and his word is truthful. And one of his words is a penalty for sin or wrongdoing is death. And so, but you, the nice thing there is that you're not necessarily trying to teach those things. You're just saying, oh, here's, here's a couple of, you know, stakes in the ground and see what see what they say. I mean, it'd be interesting if we can try it this week. Like, what would what would people say? So I have to report back. So maybe um, maybe that. And the other thing you could ask would be the question: uh, Why 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 will God show mercy? You know, I think everyone, it's a funny. I think it's a question we ask. I think we all think that's what God does. It's not a problem that God will show mercy, but actually, it's interesting just to think: Well, why why will He do that? You know, what is the reason for that? And then the surprise is actually it's grounded in the fact that he will, his name won't become mud, but actually his reputation will last for eternity because his, he, his creation won't perish, come to ruin. But for it not to come to ruin, then it has to be mercy because otherwise there's just judgment, that sort of thing. Um, the other thing I'd say is you've just got to give it a go. And then as you give it a go, you think, okay, that was, that was not so good. And speak to brothers in the church. I know like some people do. Ricky, do you still think about this? Well, he's busy now with everything else. And not in the office as much. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, that's a big good thing to discuss today. But I'm now trying to probably do what Ricky does and just think, have something to say so that when, when an opportunity comes up, I'm doing better than saying, We've just been studying the book of Isaiah because that just doesn't, that's not, that's not a tasty morsel. That's just a, and they might say, what's Isaiah about? But then it's like, <laughs> what do you say then? Cool. Right. Uh, let's leave it there. But um, we're going to sing our next song, which is um, from the highest of heights. <laughs>